The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome to today's day-long on lay renunciation. It's an interesting and important topic. And my name is Kim Allen, and I've been a student here of Gill and at IMC for over 10 years now. And I'm delighted to be able to share this today. I'm not a scholar, um, which is what the Sati Center is about, but I think this is also a topic where there hasn't been a lot of scholarly work, and we are maybe ourselves the pioneers in understanding it and discovering it. So today is a day of exploration. There will be teaching in reference to the suttas and the teachings. But there will also be multiple approaches offered, um, a chance for discussion, plenty of time for Q&A, and so forth. So the hope is that together we're going to co-create something around a common framework. I'll, I'll be trying to supply some frameworks that we can understand a topic like lay renunciation, and we'll explore more what that, what that word even means. We're also very blessed to have um, three guest speakers who are going to be presenting segments today. And I want to introduce them. They're here. I'm going to introduce them in the order that they'll be speaking. So the first is Ruby Grad, who is here. I'm sorry. Oh. And she comes to us all the way from Portland uh, to be here today because maybe this topic is near and dear to her heart also. She sits with Portland Friends of the Dhamma and would like to share some things about renunciation in daily life. And each of them will give also a bit more introduction, however they would like to, during their particular segments. And then second, we have Mirka Naster in the back here. Uh, She is the author of a book that honors the life and teachings of a a man named Anagarika Munindra, or known familiarly as Munindraji by his uh, students. And he's an interesting example of someone who lived in a way that was as a lay renunciate. And so we're going to learn specifically about his example through her. And then we also have Oren Sofer here. He was a student of Manindraji in India, lived with him for a time, and is now an insight teacher and also uh, brings many of these practices into his daily life. And he'll be sharing about all of those topics in his segment. So I think we're honored to have so many people who are living and working and thinking about this topic. And this is a chance to also think about how, what it means in your life. So today's topic is renunciation. That is not a popular word in the West. <laughs> but I'm guessing since it was right up front on the flyer that all of you are okay with it in some way because you're a self-selected group to be here, so I don't need to spend any time justifying it. Um, the most common Pali word that is used with the idea of renunciation is nekama. Nekama. And that is part of right intention. It's the uh, first of the right intentions that's mentioned on the Eightfold Path. And in the commentaries, this uh, word nekama is also the third parami, or perfection of character, that a person develops in the process of uh, moving toward awakening. But let's say right up front that 
renunciation is not about asceticism. It's not about uh, uh, denial or somehow um, with, you know, withdrawing in some way. So the Buddha said this in actually in his very first discourse that he teaches the middle way between being devoted to sensual pleasure and being uh, devoted to self-affliction or some kind of um, self-negation. Now that was probably much more of an issue at the time of the Buddha where there were mendicants who lived in very, um, uh, very ascetic ways. We don't have so much of that now, but it could include maybe the mental asceticism that some people take on. And we'll talk about a little bit later in the day about some ways that we maybe go too far in certain directions with, with renunciation. Or, as said here in Dhammapada 142, even though well adorned, if one lives at peace, calm, controlled, assured, and pure, then one is a Brahmin, a renunciate, a monastic. So the implication says, even though well adorned, so that's not an actual monk, ordained monk or nun that he's talking about. If one lives at peace with various good qualities of mind, then the Buddha praises this as being renunciation. So right there, the implication is that, you know, ordination is not required. So this word, nekama, it's primarily concerned with letting go of attachment to sense pleasure. That's what the word really means. It literally means going forth, out, or away from, or turning away, specifically from kama, which is sense, desire, you know, the, the underlying cause of attachment to sense pleasure. So the flavor of nekama could be the, the freedom that comes when we're not trying... You know, we aren't tied to getting or having certain things. So we don't have that sense of needing or wanting or grasping toward. In fact, in one formulation of the hindrances, the hindrance of sensual desire is likened to being in debt. So you get that feeling, right? You understand the feeling that he's aiming toward with sense pleasure is that it's something that uh, places us in a bond to something where we need to continually have more and more of that. There are definitely a lot of disadvantages to being tied down by a need for certain sense pleasures, if we have that in our life. So then if we renounce the sense desire, not having sense pleasures, but if we renounce the attachment to that, then there's, you can imagine that there's a feeling of relief or ease, or of not being in debt, in a sense. There are other Pali words that may be relevant. Uh, we're not going to go too much into the Pali, but I do note that there is um, words for abandon, so words like pahaya and pahana, which are um, used in the Second Noble Truth, you know, the, ab- the abandoning of the cause of suffering and also the abandoning the hindrances in order to reach jhana. That's where that word is used. Or then also words like um, relinquish, um, patina saga or vosaga, which are used in the 16th step of Anapanasati, of breathing meditation. So there's a, uh, a sense that you get to a point where letting go is what happens next. But today's focus will be less on the vocabulary than on the meaning, I think. So I want to offer a few ways that teachers, modern teachers, have uh, commented on renunciation. So 
Gill, for example, has said, renunciation is the capacity to let go of any desire which might cause suffering and hurt. Without being able to let go of a desire, there is no freedom. I think that's a good way to say it. So the, you know, the beginning part is the capacity to let go of a desire that might cause suffering and hurt. So that implies that some desires can cause suffering and hurt and other ones might not. And the ones that do, it's good if we are not tied to those ones. And you can also see the more powerfully in the second sentence, without being able to let go, there's no freedom. And that's true. That's the enslavement, the enslavement part. If we're not able to let go of something, then we're driven by it, we're tied to it. As usual, Joseph Goldstein is very succinct. He has a, a little gem of a phrase. In his latest book, Mindfulness, he defines renunciation as non-addiction, which I think is an interesting, yeah, right? Is there something to that? So this goes back to the, um, the indebtedness, the addiction, the need, the hunger, the thirst, um, and then renunciation is not having that. So there's a, an element there of the freedom. I think these also begin to hint at the notion that renunciation is not only physical or material. So there are six sense doors. Um, it says sense pleasure, and normally that would mean the five senses that we're familiar with, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. But uh, the Buddhist teachings offer a sixth sense door of the mind also. And we can imagine that renouncing, being able to renounce uh, the pleasure of the mind or things that the mind is attached to is also a very important part of this. And we're going to develop this much more fully throughout the day. But, you know, words like non-addiction or the capacity to let go of desires that may cause suffering, those could be things in the mind also. Habits of mind or ways of thinking that we really like but are causing harm. And so we that's part of renunciation too, is to let go of these unwholesome mind states or mental habits. So renunciation has typically been seen as mainly in the realm of monastics. That is true. So it's, it's kind of obvious they've given up home and family, they've given up regular clothes, their worldly identity, even having control over what they eat. So that is a really big step. In fact, monastics that I know say that the first step of um, even just becoming a novice or kind of a, a postulant, someone who's intending to ordain, is a much bigger step than after they've gone through that transitory period and actually ordain. You know, it's like by that time, if they're you know, committed to going ahead and ordaining, that's just kind of you know, great, it's the next step. But the big one is to let go of that, initi- that initial part of letting go of the lay life. And this is done, uh, presumably in the service of taking liberation or waking, awakening as the central aim of one's life. You know, that has been put forth as the reason that people ordain. According to the commentaries, the proximate cause of nekama this um, renunciation is samwega, which is another Pali word that means spiritual urgency or you know, a sense of really, you know, this is it, I want, to, I want to be free, it's time to be free. 
Actually, a very nice translation I heard recently for this word samvega is sincerity. That took a that that gave it a whole different meaning for me than spiritual urgency, which I think it has that component also. But sincerity really feels somehow a little softer and has the same flavor, you know, the same flavor of really that openness, that pureness of intention. In many traditional Buddhist cultures, lay people have a role that's much more focused on doing good deeds or what's called making merit. So they're developing ethics and generosity and an easeful worldly life and uh, kind relations with other people. I think (laughs) those are great aims, actually. Imagine if we all could say that we had that in our life (laughs) completely. (laughs) So that's no small thing, you know, that kind of development. Um, But the role of the lay people was to do all of that and support the monastics in their much more renounced role. There have always been dedicated lay followers uh, in the form of what has been called by the Buddha, upasaka and upasika, so men and women lay followers. And they often have this task of supporting the monastics in what's called the lay monastic reciprocity, if you will. Uh, The lay people support the monastics materially and the monastics hold and offer the teachings. That's been kind of the way the roles have divided up. This is actually called the fourfold sangha. The Buddha understood that this was... uh, a way to set things up so that it would be conducive for not only the development of the lay people, but also then the awakening of the monastics. And that was kind of how it was divided. The fourfold sangha means men and women ordained monastics and men and women lay followers. He has actually declared that the longevity of his teachings, the Buddha, would depend on having all four components there. So... This was a serious, you know, it wasn't just a casual, let's set this up because it seems to make sense. It was really, you know, this is how the teachings are going to be conveyed and passed on. And here we are 2,600 years later. So something worked pretty well. We have many people to thank for that. But generally, I can say generally, it was not assumed that even devoted lay people necessarily would have the aspiration of awakening. That was not expected. It was not required. After all, if they did, they would ordain, right? That was what that was for. So there's been a little bit of a a split. In fact, you know, here's a quote that captures it. This is a from a layman named Tapusa. He says, "We lay people enjoy sensual pleasures, delight in sensual pleasures, take delight in sensual pleasures, and rejoice in sensual pleasures. Renunciation seems like a precipice to us." <laughs> And in the same sutta, later, it says in contrast, the minds of monastics are said to launch out upon renunciation and become placid, settled, and liberated in it. Yeah, so certainly in the early Buddhist tradition, there was quite a large difference expected between a lay person and a monastic. And any officially recognized in-between status, if you will, was understood to be part of the path of becoming a monastic. So, for instance, if you became a novice at a monastery, it was, you know, it was because you were then going to be ordained later. That was kind of the, the process that you were entering into. 
But what about lay practitioners who are seriously devoted to the goal of liberation, who are sincere in their efforts to practice the Dharma and place it in the middle of their life? They want to practice some of the deeper forms of renunciation without taking robes. They don't have that intention. So this is while still living in the world in some way. So this, you know, this sort of idea is the idea of lay renunciation. It's interesting, and it could be seen, I think, as another type of middle way. So not fully removed from the world, like a monastic, but also not particularly interested in the world for its own end. Or to use Richard Gombrich's word, production and reproduction. (laughs) I thought that was an interesting way of saying it. So this sort of middle status of, you know, can we... Can we pursue the teachings deeply and seriously without taking robes? Is it even possible? And if so, what does that look like? I would say that it's very possible. (laughs) We're sitting in a place that's somewhat devoted to that here at IMC, and you see a lot of this in the West, people playing with uh, with this way of life. But it's not new. It's not new to here. There have actually, uh, this idea has been around for a while. All throughout Buddhist history, there have been lay people who, for various reasons, uh, their own proclivities or their own life situation, were not going to ordain, but were completely devoted to awakening serious practitioners and so forth. So we're, in a way, continuing something that has been around for a while, but has always existed a little in the margins, a little in between, not quite talked about. So here we are talking about it and thinking about what it means for us. But before we go on, I want to pick up a word that was said. I I skipped over it quickly. Richard Gombrich's words, production and reproduction. So let's talk about sex. (laughs) It is worth mentioning explicitly. Um, There was a while, a period, kind of in my thinking about this, when I wanted to call this idea lay monasticism. Lay monasticism. I, I liked that because it had this sort of oxymoronic quality to it that would make people's minds stop and think about what that really was. Uh, but then I was told by a number of people that the word monastic specifically implies celibacy. And, you know, there's like, that's, that's definitely associated. So now it's lay renunciation. Uh, there are people following a serious lay practice path who choose to be celibate. Um, but I don't see... I don't see a requirement for that. That's maybe my own view, but you know, we could we could talk about it. Other lay, there are plenty of lay people who are seriously devoted to this path and are interested in renunciation, who are married or in committed relationships. Um, I'll say specifically that both Ruby and Oren are in that situation. You'll hear from them later today. So it's an open question that's worth discussion, you know, to what degree is celibacy associated with renunciation, even in a lay context. I hope, you know, I hope it won't be uh, a taboo topic, but on the other hand, I hope it also won't be the main topic, (laughs) because there's a lot to talk about in terms of renunciation. Um, Yeah, so, but I just wanted to bring that right out, so that it's not hovering in the background and you're wondering... What about this? What about that? So right there, I don't think it's required. My personal view is that it's not required, but it's definitely worth considering, you know, to what degree are, do we need to renounce harmful ways of, of 
using sexual energy in the world. That's just part of precept practice. Okay, so moving back into the main topic. Um, today, we're going to focus mostly on the Theravadan tradition, what, you know, what has arisen from the Theravadan tradition in Southeast Asia. I'm sure many of you are aware that there are many different branches of Buddhism, and it would be very interesting and useful to delve into some of the other strands. For example, Zen, uh, where there has been a development, at least in the West, of a form that has kind of an in-between status. It's possible to uh, become a come lay ordained at any of the Zen centers in this area. And there's a different track for people who come ordained as priests, as, you know, as monastics. And so they, you know, they've done some development there. And we don't have that, really, in our tradition. There's quite a big... There's, we still carry this large difference. Um, ordaining in the Theravadan tradition is a huge thing. You... You know, you take the robe and the bowl and you give up eating afternoon and it becomes, there's no way to do it temporarily and so forth, you know, unless you, usually that's not done right up front. Where, or if you stay as a layperson, that's it. There's only one grade of layperson, if you will. You know, you're just, you're just a layperson. You can be a beginner or, you know, farther along the path or whatever, but it's, um, there's kind of no distinction. And so I, you know, I, I wonder about that, but... For today, we're going to focus on the Theravadan tradition and not bring in too much from the others. That'll have to be a future exploration, mostly just because there's so much, so much to cover. Okay, so today is going to include a series of frameworks or ways to relate to the idea of lay renunciation relate these ideas to teachings, to practice, to our lives. So the first framework that we're going to focus on, actually for a fairly large chunk, is the framework that um, contrasts uh, material renunciation and what might be called mental renunciation, or internal, external and internal, something like that, different realms. And uh, for the next few minutes, I'll talk a little bit about material renunciation, and then we'll get to what does it mean to renounce more in the mind later. They're not unrelated, of course. There has to be understanding and intention to renounce in the mind before we can have that action in the world. But I think there's a, there are different levels of it. So the level that the mind is at for material renunciation, and then it can uh, change to also more mental renunciation. Just as a preview, the second framework we'll look at is near and far enemies, because renunciation is an intention. It can have near and far enemies like other intentions, such as metta or karuna. And then the third would be, um, third framework for organizing it is prescriptive and descriptive. You know, to what degree is lay renunciation a task that we're supposed to do, and to what degree is it a description of what happens after practice has developed. So... Um, but beginning with the material and mental kind of realm, the material renunciation that we might be talking about as we think about embarking on a life of lay renunciation, we could frame in terms of what are called the four requisites. Now, these are for monastics, but they apply generally to uh, people's lives. What is needed? What is the minimum needed to live? And these are said to be uh, food, clothing, 
shelter, and medicine, right? So these are the very (coughs) basics. We have a lot of other things besides that, (laughs) many people. But the question, the sort of guiding question, maybe, that we could think about in terms of how we're going to relate to these four requisites in our life is what is really needed, or how much is enough, or um, what is adequate, what is comfortable. Um, And these are questions that are, I hope, broad enough that they can be explored at many levels. So there's the personal level, you know, what is literally needed for my life, and, you know, but then there's questions like what is needed uh, as a member of a global society. We know that Americans use far more than their uh, allotment of, e- of carbon footprint based on our proportion of the world population. So, you know, what is needed in terms of how much I'm consuming in order to be a responsible member of the global society. So we can take these questions at different levels, yeah? I won't go into too much uh, there. I want I want that to be a realm that's talked about specifically by some of the speakers. But I've thought about this a bit in my own life, in my own exploration, and these it's true that the four requisites that are named really are the basics. But I wonder, you know, for survival, for example, but I wonder if, as lay people, uh, there are additional requisites in a complex modern society like ours. I th- I've considered that it would not be easy for me to live without transportation or communication. You know, how, could, how could this group of people have come together in this room to share teachings and to share our practice without some means of communication and some means of transportation? And it's very hard to live in society, in Western society, as a layperson, uh, without, you know, even if transportation is, you get on the bus, <laughs> that has to be there, you know, the infrastructure somehow has to, has to be there, and a means to get to it, and so forth. And also communication, a phone or a computer, something like that. If a person is, has no means of communication, except public pay phones, which don't exist anymore, right? That's difficult. So I wonder if there, you know, there could be said to be additional requisites you know, even the monastics I know have email. <laughs> yeah. So, specific practices that are interesting to explore. Again, we won't go into great detail at this moment, but I do want to mention that uh, we are part of a long tradition of lay people trying to take on you know, these ideas of how can I live a simple life? How can I live a life that keeps my mind uncluttered so that I can meditate, so that I can learn the teachings, so that I can have time to come to IMC every week, things like that. And we find that there are choices, you know, sometimes there are things that we have to really look at the list of everything that we do every day and choose ones that we're not going to do in order to uh, make time or space for meditation and that, that's a beautiful practice to do, you know, to actually write down how we spend all of our time and make choices in line with our values and being willing to allow certain things not to happen. There's one interesting specific practice that I want to mention that uh, has been done mostly in Asia, but it's very common for lay people to undertake a practice called uposata practice. And don't worry about that word. 
necessarily. It means um, it's usually on the full moon for sure and maybe the half moon also or people who are very devoted do it on all four phases of the moon, each of the quarter moons also, sorry, the full moon, the new moon and each of the quarter moons and those would be then about weekly and on, on these days lay people are encouraged to uh, take the eight precepts instead of the five which means not eating afternoon uh, engaging in celibacy actually, not sleeping on high or luxurious beds and not engaging in entertainment or um, any kind of bodily adornment for that day. So just a little bit more renunciation about not making up the body to look nice and also uh, not indulging in entertainment and food in the way that we might normally. And so, you know, you can imagine once a week, something like a Sabbath, right? But we don't have that idea in Buddhism. Once a week, you take this on for a day. And also, this is usually a time when lay people would go to the monastery, the local monastery, and hear teachings. And I know people who have uh, done this as in various ways in their own practices. They take a day, they do um, a much simpler life on that day, and they just make space for it, and they spend the day reading or listening to teachings or... Um, and then engaging in the in the eight precepts, and this is a continuation of a long tradition of lay people doing this for for centuries, maybe all the way back to the to the time that we have recorded in the teachings. Traditionally, if you're a lay person, that's the only day when you meditate. By the way, <laughs> you know, you go to the monastery and you meditate. Now, we, in some ways, are more renunciate. We med- we might meditate more often than that. We might consider that part of our daily practice. So I think there are ways in which Western people even have expectations that practice is going to be, in some ways, more renunciate than how lay people have been practicing in Asia up to now. We're already kind of there. And we also have this whole system of going on retreats. You know, that's part of the culture. So if, you know, whether you do it or not, at least you're probably aware that sometimes people will go on retreats. IMC has a retreat center, for example, and that's kind of part of the culture not common in Asia for lay practitioners. So this is another way where we're kind of moving toward partway in between. We have periods when we actually do remove ourselves from the world, live much more like a monastic. You may not think of yourself as living as a monastic when you go, I mean, Spirit Rock, the food is really great, right? (laughs) But, you know, it's definitely not like what most people are doing on Saturday night. (laughs) So we... um, I would suggest that this is already happening to more of a degree than you may think of yourselves as lay renunciates. But if you, if you value the idea of going on retreat, or even today you value coming here for eight hours or something, that's a very different value than most people live by. It's worth honoring that. Traditionally, being a lay practitioner And whether one does so with the idea of being a lay renunciate or more with the idea of making merit and developing good qualities has always been tied in with faith and devotion. And those may also be words that you say, what? (laughs) I'm not, you know, I don't think about myself that way. But um, having this kind of intention to learn about the teachings, to walk the path in whatever way we're doing, is an act of faith, is an act of um, turning toward uh, this way of practice, this way of being. And so I would say it also includes wisdom. You know, there's, we're developing both of those uh, 
spiritual factors, spiritual faculties of faith and wisdom at the same time to choose not to just go with the stream of society, to choose something different, to, even if it feels very exploratory to you, you know, you're here today, like, I'm going to see if renunciation is something that I can be in the same room with for this long. Still, um, the interest in that is itself showing a certain degree of wisdom. Hmm. So I'm delighted to see everyone here and hope it will be a wonderful day of exploration. I hope this gave a bit of an introduction. We're, we're focusing right now more on the material renunciation and then through the rest of the day we'll move on to um, talking about a particular group of people who have throughout history um, been in this middle position and that, that's called the Anagarika and that's... Um, has many different meanings depending which context you're in. So we'll talk about people who have done that. And then we'll talk a little bit more about um, what it means to take renunciation internally and begin really letting go of unwholesome mental habits and what that can do in freeing our minds up to benefit others in the world. Because for sure, renunciation is not only benefiting you. <laughs> if, if you see it that way as, oh, my own personal way of being, you can't help <laughs> but be spreading out and benefiting others. And there can be um, passive and active ways of doing that. And then we'll move into some of the near and far enemies of renunciation, you know, ways that we can be practicing that we think we're practicing renunciation, but it's actually feeding some unwholesome quality that's a little bit close to renunciation. This is helpful to know because we want to kind of keep on track as we're developing this and potential challenges that it can bring about some criticism that this um, way of being has received from monastics, for example. And then finally at the end, um, some aspiration and inspiration and summary of the day, ways that um, this way of practice can, even for lay people, lead toward awakening. Interspersed will be our guest speakers and two opportunities to discuss in small groups one at the end of the morning and one uh, later in the afternoon. So I very much hope that you'll be interested to stay for the whole day, but of course, if you can only be here for part of it, that's fine also. Okay, so we're going to move on now to have um, Ruby share with us some of what she's done in her life and what she knows about, um, about this type of renunciation. And then after that, we're going um, to have a break. So if you can... You can wait through that. That would be good.